This is Guns and Butter. I have to reiterate one more time that this is not just another murder, not just another assassination, but I insist from the, uh, I, I would stake my life on it. Much as I love this country, this country will not survive as a republic if they continue. The Congress and the presidency, the two officers I now hold most responsible, if they continue to fool the people about Jack Kennedy and continue to postpone telling them the truth, our country will not survive. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, the assassination of JFK, the Garrison Interview Part 2. In this 1988 radio documentary, you'll hear the voice of co-producer and writer David Mendelson interviewing former New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, author of Mafia Kingfish, Carlos Marcello and the Assassination of JFK, John Davis, and filmmaker Oliver Stone. Roscoe Mercer narrates. The Assassination of JFK, the Garrison interview, was co-produced, edited, and directed by Andrew Phillips. The shots apparently came from the fifth floor of the Texas Bookstore Depository Building, possibly from an automatic cut weapon. Police were looking for a young white man dressed in a white shirt with Levi's carrying a lever-action type rifle. One witness told reporters that he had seen the rifle disappearing from that window after the shots were fired. Senator Ralph Yarbrough told a KBOX reporter that he was riding three cars behind the president's car when he heard three distinct rifle shots. A motorcade then increased in speed, running to Parkland Hospital. Just a moment, just a moment, we have a bulletin coming in. We now switch you directly to Parkland Hospital and KBOX News Director Bill Hampton. The President of the United States is dead. I have just talked to Father Oscar Hubert of the Holy Trinity Catholic Church. He and another priest tell me that the pair of men have just administered the last rites of the Catholic Church to President Kennedy. I asked the Father, is Mr. Kennedy dead? And his quote, he's dead all right. And just a few seconds ago, I talked to Thurman Ward, the Justice of the Peace of Garland. He's now here at the hospital to apparently officially declare that the Chief Executive of the United States has expired. President Kennedy has been assassinated. It's official now. The President is dead. This is a story about that moment in America when the government changed and the people were excluded. Not just from choosing their leader, but from knowing why their leadership changed. Millions of Americans have seen Oliver Stone's movie, JFK, which focuses on Garrison's investigation in 1967. But very few have heard Judge Garrison recount his work and his message for America in his own words. This is a story about that day in Dallas, the day John Kennedy died. I think that bringing out the truth is so critical that these words must be said. The American people have to face the fact that this is not an oversight, not a mistake on somebody's part. Every day that passes, high individuals at the very top of the United States government are playing an active role in concealing from you the truth of John Kennedy's murder. Most of the men in, uh, that are in the Congress who have an IQ of 100 above, or let's say even 50 and above, have to know he was brutally murdered and torn apart, but they no longer really care, apparently, because his name is never even mentioned anymore. 
And look at the attitude of the presidents, one after the other. These are the chief executives of our country, and yet we've had a succession of presidents now, and not one even mentions the name of John Kennedy. Apparently, they, are, they expect us to believe that Jack Kennedy is on sabbatical up at Hyannisport, and everything's all right. Well, everything isn't all right. I suggest that if the government, including the presidents, and including presidents who speak softly of wanting a, a kinder, gentler nation, how about an honest, also an, a more honest nation that tells the people the truth, which it hasn't done? Until the presidents and the Congress itself do something about bringing out the truth, I do not think this republic will last. I think it will fall. And if this happens, and it falls because the government will not tell the truth, then it deserves to fall. There are many unanswered questions concerning the death of President Kennedy, and there are several credible theories. This is not a definitive examination of the tragic events of 1963, but the Garrison interview is an important audio document of a crucial and little understood moment of American history. Let's go back to the weekend um, of the assassination and what uh, tipped you off that uh, New Orleans might really be at the center of a possible conspiracy. Guy Bannister was booked that night. Well, first of all, those things did not tip me off that anything was happening. You must understand, and I plead guilty to believing the government's lie. The biggest lie it told in the history of the human race, I now see, was told by the United States government that continues to be told. But I am one of the people who believed it. And one of the reasons I believed it was I'd been in the Army all my life, five years in World War II, 18 years in, a, in the National Guard, and the Army had never deceived me or been deceptive, and the Army was a government to me. So I accepted these things without question. Now, the way that I happen to stumble across and, and gather and look into things of, from the, what we found came across of, the, of uh, Bannister's beating of Jack Martin, what you described in the, the police report is dated 22nd of November 1963, the night of the assassination, and uh, how we happened, even though I believe the government's pronouncements, uh, how my office happened to catch uh, David Ferry, when he came back in from from uh, his weekend trip to Texas, was because I was just doing my duty as a district attorney uh, because the president had been killed. Uh, Lee Oswald had spent the summer in New Orleans, so we were pretty much, you might say, grabbing suspicious people. It just happens, it, it, in hindsight, it's clear, but it, by accident we grabbed people who were relevant, but we did not know that at the time. So that's why I promptly turned uh, a ferry over to the, to the FBI and things like that. And uh, for the next three years, I concentrated on burglaries, on robberies, murders, and so forth. So don't give me too much credit. I was not an early... Uh, I'm not that quick. I did not see that something was wrong, which uh, which was I, I I should have. It was apparent, but I didn't see it for three years. Well, why did uh, Bannister beat Martin that that night? The reason Bannister beat Jack Martin that night was Bannister because uh, probably and not unrelated to his years as head of the 
of the FBI in Chicago uh, while he was capable of drinking heavily at night and, and uh, he would not uh, drink during the day and uh, was sober as a judge during the day, but on the day of the assassination, as they, uh, he was with Jack Martin who worked for him. Jack Martin did the detective work and the office had on the front of it Guy Bannister, private detective, but all Guy Bannister did all day was work on the logistics and the problems of getting additional ammunition to Cuba for rage on Cuba and the training. He was totally working for the CIA, but Jack Martin, who was intelligent, uh, did his detective work. So they were friends, even though they were vitally different, tremendously different personalities, but they'd both been drinking. And Bannister, for the first time in anybody's memory, got completely drunk on the afternoon of the assassination. So they got in an argument. Uh, it doesn't have to be a great reason between two drunks, and they were on the way home at, at nightfall, home meaning around the corner from the Catch and Jammer bar on Camp Street, around the corner of Lafayette Street to Guy Bannister's office, and uh, somewhere on the way upstairs, or on the second floor where the office was, um, Bannister blew up, and uh, out of the blue, as Jack uh, finally told me, uh, uh, said to Jack that he'd been looking into his filing cases. Well, of course, uh, Bannister was very uh, uh, careful about his filing ca cases because there was nothing in there but intelligence, as we later learned out. There were no private cases at all. They usually kept them locked. But uh, Jack Martin, uh, who was... Uh, well, he was something of a character. He nevertheless was a thoroughly honest man, and he was outraged. And he he replied uh, the best way he knew how, and as he said, he was referring to Lee Oswald at the time. He said, look, I saw some uh, certain people coming in and out of your office all summer long, and I can say something about that if I want to. And at that point, Bannister, who did not just carry regular uh, sidearm, carried a... A 357 Magnum pulled out a 357 Magnum. This is something else he never done besides drinking the daytime. He pistol whipped uh, Martin until uh, uh, they had to get a, an ambulance over to, to cart the body away. That's the way that thing developed. This on November 22nd. Yes, because and, and the specific point again was uh, it, it, it's funny how quickly uh, it took in time when you stop. It was a matter of hours after. After the arrest of Oswald, uh, who was arrested at 3 o'clock Dallas time, and this is roughly 5.45 or 6 New Orleans time, and already, too soon for Bannister, already someone who Bannister knows has called his attention that he hasn't forgotten seeing Lee Oswald in and out of that office. So that's why he blew up. Something I think we should get into, uh, which Garrison never goes into in his book, is uh, how Garrison became interested in reinvestigating the assassination of John F. Kennedy. John Davis, author of Mafia Kingfish, Carlos Marcello and the Assassination of JFK. is pretty certain that it was Senator Russell Long who convinced Garrison to reopen the investigation of the JFK assassination. Long was closely associated with Carlos Marcello. He was Marcello's man in Washington uh, and uh, Marcello was Long's principal financial backer. It was Russell Long who persuaded Garrison that the CIA was behind the JFK murder. So, in a way, you have um, the sinister possibility that Garrison was being manipulated by Marcello forces to reopen the investigation and to point it in a different direction. 
pointed away from organized crime and toward the CIA. We have to mention also that another individual who was responsible for convincing Garrison to reopen the investigation was Congressman from uh, Louisiana, Hale Boggs, uh, who was another supporter of Marcello, and Marcello was a backer of his campaigns. And curiously, Hale Boggs was appointed to the Warren Commission by President Johnson. And uh, he also evidently persuaded Garrison that the CIA was behind the assassination. Carlos Marcello was the boss of the second largest mafia family in the United States, which um, operated throughout Louisiana, Mississippi, and parts of Texas, including Dallas and Houston. This criminal organization was doing a business of something like $2 billion a year in narcotics and um, extortion uh, schemes, and prostitution rings, I mean, you name it, every, every conceivable crime you can think of. And so it was an immensely wealthy organization, and Marcello himself was supposed to have been the richest single mafia boss in the whole country. And he came under um, a sort of special attack by Robert Kennedy when he was attorney general. He was singled out for special investigation and prosecution because Robert, Ke Robert Kennedy was so appalled by this man and what he had gotten away with all his life. Uh, and there was a standing order of deportation against him. And Robert Kennedy did something extraordinary that no other attorney general ever did. Uh, he, he, he did an arguably illegal thing, which was to deport Carlos Marcello in an extra-legal way, to l literally kidnap him off the streets of New Orleans, throw him on a government plane, and fly him down to Guatemala, where he was dumped, and he, he, Marcello later complained that he didn't have a, he couldn't call his wife, he couldn't get his toothbrush, he, had no, he couldn't go to the bank and cash a check. He was just dropped in Guatemala. Uh, so after that, the Guatemalans deported him to El Salvador, and then he was deported from El Salvador to Honduras, and he spent something like 20 or 30 days uh, hiking through jungles, uh, where he collapsed several times and broke uh, ribs, and it was it was a terrible ordeal. It was a very humiliating ordeal for such a powerful mafia boss. And he finally illegally returned to the United States, and I I found at least um, three reports, reliable reports, that he was swearing vengeance against the Kennedys when Hoffa was feeling so cornered by uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was prosecuting him, was, and was, was trying to put him in jail, and eventually succeeded. Uh, he felt so cornered that he turned to uh, Regano to deliver a message. This is, this, is, this is, of course, according to Regano's story, to deliver a message to Carlos Marcello that uh, he wanted him killed, he wanted Kennedy killed and uh, more or less take care of it, do it for me. And it, it's uh, it thought that one of the reasons why Marcello went along with this is that he coveted, coveted the um, Teamsters Central States Pension Fund, which was had almost a billion dollars in it. And um, it is thought that Hafa promised 
Marcello $3 million from the fund if he pulled off the hit. Frank Regano was an attorney for Jimmy Hoffa and an attorney for Florida Mafia boss Santo Traficante for years. And he also knew Carlos Marcello. And uh, in 1979, a congressional committee determined that the three most likely suspects to have conspired to um, murder President Kennedy were Jimmy Hoffa, Sandro Traficante, and Carlos Marcello, the three people that Frank Regano was in constant touch with. So uh, he is a logical, I would say he's a very logical witness to the conspiracy which the House Select Committee identified but could not prove back in 79. David Ferry was earning his living at the time as an investigator for Carlos Marcello. He was working on a case which had been brought against Marcello by uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Uh, his principal allegiance at the time, his principal connection, was to mob boss Carlos Marcello. Uh, Guy Bannister, who uh, was a former FBI agent and had uh, intelligent connection, intelligence connections, was also very close to Carlos Marcello. He regularly did investigatory work for him. The two were on very good terms. So I view Bannister more as a creature of Carlos Marcello than I do the CIA. And uh, now we know that Lee Harvey Oswald was also connected to Carlos Marcello, probably perhaps more so than to any uh, specific intelligence agency. The issue of organized crime versus intelligence is at the center of discussion, if only because, as you say, there are many books that are being published right. by, uh, as you say, intelligence uh, to, that are saying it's the organized crime to get us off the trail. Uh, I just want to follow up because it's in the literature. Bobby why would they have killed Bob? Why wouldn't they have uh, killed Bobby Kennedy? Why wouldn't they have more easily killed um, Bobby Kennedy rather than President Kennedy? The answer given is, well, uh, if you kill Bobby Kennedy and then the President uh, Kennedy finds out it was organized crime, then he's still the president. He'll get a new attorney general. He'll go after uh, organized crime like crazy. The other um, element that's added is that Bobby Kennedy apparently ordered the deportation of Carlos Marcello and left him unceremoniously without his shoes in Guatemala, and uh, that uh, Marcello therefore had a motive to come back and get uh, President Kennedy in order to get Bobby Kennedy uh, off his back. It just, I know people are interested in hearing your response to My this. response <coughs> is your arguments are impelling. You have won me over. And for the first time, I see that it is so clear that organized crime did it that I don't see how any thinking person could miss. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that it is quite clear that organized crime, which, which was a, a really played a, a major role in changing our foreign policy on November 22, 1963, was probably helped, not alone, but probably helped by Donald Duck and Mickey Mouse. Women here in shock, some have fainted. Grown men, Secret Service men standing by the emergency room, tears streaming down their face. There's only one word to describe the picture here, and that's grief, and much of it. It's official, as of just a few moments ago. The President of the United States is dead. I 
ask you, who has the most power to change the route at the last minute of the President of the United States? A big tuna Ocado or the security portions of the United States government to sign to protect? That's not all. After the, the President's event, the Secret Service itself participated in the hijacking of the, over the verbal vocal protests of the Dallas officials because the autopsies required under Texas law to be held in Dallas for reasons like this. To keep an autopsy from being done in another state under strange controls. Anyway, the body of John Kennedy was whisked out by Air Force One, by, uh, by federal personnel, and they got it into a military hospital in Bethesda, and it was a military hospital. Now, in that military autopsy, there were 30 men approximately, most in uniforms, almost all military officers of high rank, except for one of the pathologists who was a civilian. The other two pathologists were military, and there were several uh, FBI agents and several Secret Service. So you have entirely federal people. It was so badly rigged that the members of the Warren Commission could not look at it. They put their hands over their eyes, and just to also save them from being embarrassed, the autopsy papers and the x-rays were not even presented to them. They never saw them, the autopsy. And furthermore, the chief pathologist on that Sunday weekend burned the original autopsy in his fireplace. So there you have a rigged autopsy. Now, what room was there for a member of the mob to be participating? That's my reply to people who think the mob was involved. Why didn't those officials whose responsibility it would be to find the truth find the truth after all these years? Let me answer that and tell something about the cover-up, and I'd like to say something about the significance of this murder because I think it's been underestimated. Do I have a minute? Okay. Uh, first of all, um, I think I've made the point for, for, uh, to the reasonable individual that uh, elements of the covert operations, not the entire structure of the CIA, because John McCone, who was appointed by, by Jack, Jack Kennedy, I know cared for Jack Kennedy, but elements of the covert operations, which was the muscle part, the murder part of the CIA, and consists even now of two-thirds of the CIA, that's one of the first things we ought to do after we change the name of the CIA is get rid of covert operations. You shouldn't have covert operations inside the United States against American citizens. But we do every day, and that's one of the things that has caused this country to cease being a democracy. With Mrs. Kennedy aboard the presidential jet is Merriman Smith of UPI, Dean of the White House Correspondents. A Dallas police officer drove me from the hospital to the airport, and I went aboard Air Force One. The large center cabin was darkened, all shades drawn, members of the Kennedy staff sitting stunned, staring straight ahead, some crying softly. Sarah T. Hughes, 67-year-old federal judge, old friend of the Johnsons, rushed in a special car to the big white ramp at the front of Air Force One. Someone pressed a small black Bible into the hands of the judge as she went aboard. Secret Service agents gently placed the coffin in the rear cabin of the plane, a cabin, incidentally, which served as the living room for the president and his family when they were airborne. Jackie went to a small bedroom. She wanted a few moments to compose herself. Then Mrs. Kennedy walked down the narrow corridor from her bedchamber and into the lounge. She was dry-eyed, but her face was a, a mask of shock. As a man might lead a small child, Johnson took her hand and led Jackie to a place at his left side. Mrs. Johnson stood at his right. Johnson then nodded to the judge. 
And thus, a new chapter of American history began. I do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute. I will faithfully execute. The office of President of the United States. The office of President of the United States. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve. Preserve. Protect. Protect. And defend. And defend. The Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. Help me God. So help me God. The ceremony had taken only two minutes. It was 2.38 p.m. Central Standard Time, and the president called out quite firmly, now let's get airborne. The pilot, Colonel James Swindoll, immediately started the engines of the big gleaming silver and blue fan jet, and in another few minutes, Air Force One roared down the Dallas runway. Once the plane was airborne, the Johnsons settled down in the lounge where the swearing-in ceremony had taken place. Mrs. Kennedy left her bedroom again, and walked slowly down the corridor to the rear cabin. She sat down beside the coffin, and there she remained throughout the flight, never more than a matter of inches from her husband's body. As Air Force One sped toward the nation's capital, Johnson got to work with members of his staff. He drafted what was to be his first public statement. Then he placed a special radio telephone call to Mrs. Rose Kennedy, the late president's mother. By this time, it was dark. We could see the lights of Andrews Air Force Base coming up fast. We put down for a glass-smooth landing at 5.59 Washington time. What was the role of uh, David Ferry? What was the role of Clay Shaw, as far as you can see, in the conspiracy? The role of uh, the role of David Ferry was, uh, uh, as you might have gathered in my description of Guy Bannister and the anti-Cuban activity, was essentially the right-hand man of of, of 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 Bannister, and from that we were able to make certain surmises. And I give you an example: we knew he was associated with Lee Oswald over the years because we got so many witnesses. And, uh, and in addition to the fact, witnesses at ultimately at Bannister's had said he was always spending his time with. When he wasn't meeting with Guy Bannister, he was talking with Ferry. Always, the kid was always. They called him the kid. And uh, uh, his his role was the liaison man, the extension. The Guy Bannister was like the the commander of the battalion. Had too much to do to leave headquarters. But he said that was uh, that was apparently. That was uh, related to Ferry's function rolling right into Texas on the day of the assassination. He never told us, and there's no way of our finding out because he's dead now. But it's rather apparent it was some form of liaison since he knew so many of the Cuban shooters had been training north of the lake, and he knew the kid postulate just one of many possibilities for one brief second. And you can see if uh, many men were worried about Oswald talking while he was alive until they could get to him and kill him, think of the value of a familiar voice like uh, Dave Ferry calling from Dallas, where it can be trained, saying, Lee, thank God I got you on the phone. I'm here in Dallas. We want to reassure you everything is, is great. You've done a beautiful job. Just keep cool. Everything's working. You're going to be a hero. Something along the line is what I suggest. And that's my first postulation, because I don't like to speculate, but he was something along those lines. We found out that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald actually worked as a runner in um, the Marcello gambling network, the bookmaking network, 
in the summer of 1963. Oswald's uncle was a key figure in Marcello's gambling network, and Oswald worked as a runner for his uncle. Uh, also, there were reliable witnesses who saw Lee Harvey Oswald in Carlos Marcello's headquarters in New Orleans. As a matter of fact, Ferry, who knew Oswald quite well, was at Carlos Marcello's swampland estate uh, during the two weekends preceding the assassination ostensibly working on the uh, on the case against Marcello, but we think uh, he was up to other things, such as plotting the assassination of the president. You're listening to the assassination of JFK, The Garrison Interview, Part 2. This 1988 radio documentary was co-produced by David Mendelson and Andrew Phillips and includes the voice of former New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, author of Mafia Kingfish, John Davis, and filmmaker Oliver Stone. Roscoe Mercer narrates. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. As Jacqueline Kennedy prepares to leave the White House for ceremonies at the Capitol Rotunda, Lee Harvey Oswald is being transferred from the basement of the city jail to the county jail. Ike Pappas, WNEW New York, is on the scene. Yeah, he's got to be here. There he is. Now the prisoner uh, wearing a black sweater, he has changed from his T-shirt, is being uh, moved out toward an armored car. Being let out by uh, Captain Fritz. There is the prisoner. Do you have anything to say in your defense? There is a shot. Oswald has been shot. Oswald has been shot. A shot rang out. Mass confusion here. the doors have been locked. Holy mackerel. A shot rang out as he was led into his car. The shot, there's a mass confusion there. Garrison almost entirely uh, uh, ignores Jack Ruby, who of course 
was a, a beacon, a flashing light telling us where the assassination came from since he was so closely associated with organized crime. And since the killing of a principal suspect uh, as soon as possible after the crime is a time-honored um, modus operandi of, of the mafia. Jack Ruby was a, um, a minor mobster in Dallas. Dallas was under the jurisdiction of Carlos Marcello. Nobody could operate the rackets in, uh, in Dallas without Marcello's approval. And Ruby knew a number of Marcello uh, associates. He, he knew uh, at least two of Marcello's brothers. He um, was close to Marcello's key uh, deputies in Dallas, Joseph Savillo and Joseph Campisi. Uh, it is safe to say that uh, Jack Ruby was an associate of Carlos Marcello. As was pointed out by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, Carlos Marcello was the only figure who had connections to both the suspected assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the suspected assassin's killer, Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby is one of the uh, people who testified to that or spoke to that, saying that the conspiracy was was huge. He was trying to tell, and he said, made no secrets about it. He said he was scared to death of some members of the sheriff's office he didn't identify. But as he told Warren, and uh, <coughs> the forward was present too, <coughs> he said, if you will just get me out of here, I'll tell you about the biggest conspiracy you ever heard of, but I can't do it here. You got about that time somebody looked at their watch and said, well, it's time for lunch. Literally. He wanted to get out of Dallas and to Washington at yes. the very least. Yes, at the very least. And then, then we would have learned something about the dimensions. But the people in Washington, uh, they, they weren't uh, crazy about that idea because they didn't want to know any more than they knew. He is white. Pull the chop down there yelling. Here's the driver. Let the driver fight. Oswald, white. Lying in the ambulance, his head is back, he is out, unconscious, dangling, his hand is dangling over the uh, edge of the stretcher, and now the ambulance is moving out, the flashing red lights. Here are some police officials. Who was he? Jack Ruby is a name. Jack Ruby? Ruby. Carousel Club. He runs the Carousel Club? He handed me that card the other day. He was in... What did he say? He was in the carousel... He was in the uh, headquarters here. Perhaps uh, we'd finish with maybe where we might have be begun. If people uh, still have a question in their minds whether Lee Oswald was acting alone or not, um, what comes to your mind as some of the most obvious and strongest proofs that Oswald was acting in concert uh, with others? Look at uh, what really happened. First of all, uh, the, uh, later when they attempted, uh, after the assassination, when experts, the world's leading experts, attempted to duplicate the feat, uh, with Oswald's rifle, they could not even begin to duplicate the feat. So that alone indicates that Oswald did not do it. But even more than that, Oswald's gun was so bad, uh, that Manlicker Carcano was so bad, that it, 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 was, it was predictable. It couldn't be done. But furthermore, even before the experts could hit the side of a barn, they had to have the sight adjusted. The sight was loose and not adjusted. 
And when you look through the sight, you weren't looking down the same line as the tube. But moreover, and the final, most tragic thing of all, and I'll finish the point with this, in any American, uh, most Americans, I think, have uh, a feeling about, uh, about other people in the human race. It's a great thing about our country that we know that uh, it, it's not, we're not made up of a, a dominant uh, a portion of cruel people. Lee Oswald was exonerated from firing a rifle on the evening of the assassination. The nitrate test showed he hadn't fired a rifle at all. And yet, uh, the man in charge of this operation, not only the assassination, but now the cover-up, were so cruel and so heartless that it wasn't enough to kill the president and uh, sit idly by and let Oswald be killed as an assassin when they knew he hadn't killed the president. But it took eight months before the rest of America found out that Oswald had not fired a rifle at all because it was in the small print of the Warren Report. And so that's one of the most terrible things to happen, but now that can't be undone. And, and finally, what did he think he was doing? It's become pretty clear in general terms what he was doing, but in precise terms, nobody from the FBI has told us. He was working with the FBI. A piece of news that surfaced early on, and the Warren Commission almost went to pieces uh, trying to cover it up. And that was uh, when his, his uh, numbers surfaced when he said, in effect, look, fellas, what, I don't know what you're trying to do to me. I'm working for the FBI. I'm trying to find out what's going on, too. My number is S-179. That was a, a, a part of the standard number for an FBI informant. Well, of course, that was squashed before anybody could even get a start on it. How did you first hear about Clay Shaw's uh, involvement in the uh, in the conspiracy, and uh, and then what uh, evidence did you develop against him? We did not hear about his involvement in the conspiracy precisely. We learned that uh, from an attorney. Uh, again, I, I seem to have been in the accident of knowing all these individuals. It probably helped because I knew who was lying, who wasn't, and I stumbled across the fact early on that Dean Andrews, an attorney who for years handled cases for Clay Shaw, although we didn't know that at the moment. Uh, Andrews specialized in, in uh, municipal court cases largely and had an office on which, and was also handling uh, some papers for uh, uh, Lee Oswald with regard to getting a citizenship for Marina. And uh, Bannister had uh, made a call on the day after the assassination to uh, Dallas, Texas, to Oswald's jail. Now, the setup for Oswald, uh, incredibly enough, uh, by now you've seen the, the curious uh, nonchalance of the Dallas police force in operation. Oswald was both receiving and making calls. Here's a man who just supposedly, supposedly, I emphasize, killed the president because he killed no one. As far as the jailer knows, he killed the president, but nevertheless, he, he'd say, Lee, is another call for you, and they'd bring him to the phone, and then whenever he wanted to make a call, he'd give the number to the jailer, and the jailer would make the call and bring him over and, and keep all those papers together. And so Andrews had received a call, as he testified later, to, as he told me and when I questioned him, and then he told the FBI and he told the Warren Commission, he received a call from a man he identified as Clay Bertrand 
asking him to represent Lee Oswald. He, he said something about him in the hospital. He was in uh, Charity Hospital at the time. I don't know if I can, and uh, let me think that over. And about the time he put down the receiver, about 25 FBI men hit the door, you know, because they were monitoring those lines. Parenthetically, if, if you, some listener might be curious as to what happened to all the calls that Oswald made and received, which cer certainly got my curiosity. I must have spent 50 hours digging them down. And the bottom line was that the jailer said, oh, he kept them religiously. He kept every call coming in and kept them all. But one day he came in, looked in his drawer, and they were all gone. He doesn't know what happened to them. But anyway, that's how, that's how we know we learned that, uh, that Dean Andrews had received such a call, but the name Clay Bertrand we, we weren't that familiar with. So when we, we found that, uh, obviously, going through the questions, we got co copies of the FBI interview of Oswald, and we got copies of, because uh, um, this, this went on now for several years, by, by the late spring of 64, Dean Andrews had testified for the Warren Commission. I studied his testimony, and I observed uh, how increasingly frightened he became when he was asked who Clay Bertrand was. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the more he was asked about uh, Clay Bertrand's identity, uh, the more steadily Clay Bertrand shrunk, because he was six feet three when uh, Andrews first described him to the to the uh, FBI, but by the time the Warren Commission asked him how tall Clay Bertrand was, he was only five feet tall. Well, usually that's a sign that the, that the man is being answering the questions isn't completely comfortable with his situation. He's trying to get out of it. Well, we, we, knew, we knew that uh, he couldn't be both, and we knew that Andrews was lying. So uh, after I had a long long uh, conversation with Andrews and told him, look, Dean, in effect, we went, we went to law school together. You're a friend of mine. I like you. But let me make one thing clear. If you continue to lie to me like you did to the FBI and the Warren Commission, you're not just going to walk out. You're going to go in front of the grand jury, and if you lie to the grand jury, you're going to jail. Well, that's what happened, of course. And we convicted him for, of perjury in front of a jury. That was the first conviction in the Kennedy case. There was a conviction, unlike what people say. That was the first. I'd like to hear your view of the role, if any, in the uh, conspiracy to carry out the murder of President Kennedy and the cover-up of people like Jared Hoover, uh, Alan Dulles, Earl Warren, uh, President Johnson. What's your view about those people? Let's take each one of those four. Uh, and first of all, it, it goes much higher than I've described. Naturally, I'm describing a tactical level, which we stumbled across, which is handling it. Uh, but uh, you don't remove a president. A president is not removed to change foreign policy just because a handful of people at a tactical level decide to do so. I think that you can safely say that uh, individuals such as uh, uh, J. Edgar Hoover were actively involved at the outset because... Hoover uh, not only uh, wanted to see Johnson uh, in office, he lived across the street from him in Washington for 19 years, probably his closest friend, and uh, he, he had become uh, senile, frankly. In other words, it's, it's fine to be against communism, and, 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 and uh, I, I am, everybody is probably, uh, to a reasonable degree, but when you reach a point like J. Edgar Hoover, where you think every man who doesn't wear a, 
a, a, a hat and a handkerchief in his pocket as a communist, he became very, very dangerous man. So I, I would put him as one of the people involved at the highest level. Now, as to Johnson, there's an old adage in intelligence which is very seriously regarded, and it's, it's important. It's uh, on a need-to-know basis. In other words, you don't give information, no matter how trustworthy they are, to people who don't need to know because it saves the number of people you have to tell. Johnson was such a natural hawk that they knew they could change the policy back to the Cold War without telling him, so I suggest the likelihood that is on a need-to-know basis, they didn't bother to tell him because he was so totally corrupt they didn't have to tell him anyway. Alan Dulles is, uh, without the slightest doubt, a major participant in the conspiracy to kill Kennedy and uh, to, to uh, change the foreign policy because to appreciate Dulles, you have to understand that he is the man even though the CIA was formed out of the OSS, it was really when Dulles took over. Because of its origins in the OSS, special emphasis was given early on to the, to the covert operations. But Dulles, it was really under Dulles that killing became a science in the CIA and uh, something regularly done and accepted and done to Americans within America. That was truly an evil man. And I am satisfied that of all the corrupt things that, uh, that uh, Lyndon Johnson ever did, appointing Alan Dulles to sit on the, on the Warren Commission and find out who killed John Kennedy was, was very much like uh, appointing a Brutus to investigate the death of Julius Caesar to see who killed him. He knew exactly who killed him and how he was killed, and he knew he was going to be killed beforehand. I have no doubt about that. Well, the other name was Earl Warren, but I'd like to see... Earl Warren, I think, is... is uh, uh, I have to, I have to um, look at that in a different way. I think he was fooled. I really think he was fooled. He was called in. It happened uh, in a confrontation with, with Johnson. You see, they had structured in so many false sponsors, and one you've asked me about with justification, uh, the mob, and, and, and then they had... They structured in uh, Castro, and they structured in the uh, oil barons. It was a beautifully done plan, and probably with the final approval of people at the dullest level. But uh, anyway, you have to, you have to uh, assume that uh, in the case of, of, of Warren, by getting him in, you stopped the liberals from coming in too deeply, and that was what was so cynical about the plan, but it was beautifully done. When he left Warren's office, he knew nothing about it. When he left Warren's office, he had tears running down his face, and I know what they told him. They'd also structured in the possibility of uh, some kind of Russian response if there was going to be a sign of warfare, something like that. And I can almost visualize Johnson, who would, uh, the man who would climb a tree to tell a lie. Uh, I can say Johnson saying, uh, uh, Chief, or whatever he called him, uh, we need your help. This is, we need the nation needs you now more than ever, and so forth. And so, and the, so they got a, 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 an honest, well-intentioned man who uh, wasn't, to say, the greatest intellectual in the world and fooled him, and had so, him sitting there surrounded by, by people who were really running the thing like Alan Dulles. 
What about the level between Bannister and these these people at at uh, at the level of a Dulles or a Hoover? Do you have information? No, no. I'm, I I have to be. Uh, I, I can't pretend to to, to have a, a a magic globe, and 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 I've been carefully insulated from all that, so I won't speculate. I found it clearly up to Bannister. I can see how he worked, but I don't pretend to have inside knowledge of that upper gap, where whereby it goes up to the top level of. Uh, covert operations, but I do think it, it had to go with some of the highest individuals of covert operations because you're not merely changing foreign policy, you're removing a president of the United States to do it. And in that regard, I, I, have, to, I have to reiterate one more time that this is not just another murder, not just another assassination, but I insist from the, uh, I, I would stake my life on it. Much as I love this country, this country will not survive as a republic if they continue, the Congress and the presidency, the two officers I now hold most responsible, if they continue to fool the people about Jack Kennedy and continue to postpone telling them the truth. Our country will not survive. We certainly know now that the Mafia worked with the CIA and was used by the CIA. We have documents that show the CIA used crime elements in various countries to do some of its work. They work hand in hand, as, as discussed in, the, in several scenes in the movie. On January 15, 1992, Oliver Stone, director of JFK, spoke before the National Press Club in Washington and took questions from the audience. He answers a question some may feel was not fully addressed in the interview. Stone was asked about Garrison's failure to win a conviction in the Shaw trial and whether Garrison wasn't really just trying to gain publicity for himself in an attempt to run for governor of Louisiana. Mr. Garrison in the film says it is just inconceivable to him that the Mafia would have the organizational ability to bring an Oswald in and out of Russia, to get him a job in a book depository, to design the parade route and motorcade in such a way that it would bring Mr. Kennedy beneath the building in such a way. And beyond that, how would the mob cover up the autopsy and uh, appoint the Warren Commission? Your depiction of Garrison as Robin Hood is grossly distorted. Clay Shaw was acquitted in less than an hour, a fact you conveniently ignore. Garrison was using Shaw as a clay pigeon. He wanted to be governor and was using Shaw to gain fame. Please comment. Why anyone would, in 1967, seek to be a governor of a, of a, of a state by going against it, uh, the CIA and the entire government suggesting they killed its president is beyond me. <laughs> Your political life, Jim's political life was over the moment he brought those charges. Uh, obviously, uh, he was taking on the establishment in a major way, and uh, he paid a heavy price for it. As to the case itself, I just would want, want to remind you that he has been vilified and trashed over and over and over again in the press. He has now become a non-person in a sense that Stalin's opponents, Bukharov and uh, Trotsky, became non-persons. There are no specifics that are ever brought up. It's been a media mantra, a buzzword, a coda, a credo. The journalists cite each other to substitute for critical analysis. Jim had an interesting history. He was an FBI man. He was a war hero. He was elected three times DA of New Orleans. Why? Not by the establishment, but because he was popular. 
He was unpopular in the press in the Times-Picayune. He was unpopular with Clay Shaw's friends. He was unpopular with the establishment of New Orleans. But he was elected three times. And then he's since become an appellate judge in that same city after the trial. He had a case. It was, there were two evidentiary hearings. He went to a three-judge panel, criminal judges. He presented his facts. They, those three judges in 1967 said, go to trial. He went to a grand jury of 12 jurors. They said, go to trial. It was hardly, hardly the frolic described, and it was not a whim. He had, he had witnesses, and he had evidence. Three major witnesses, however, died before he could get to trial. Obviously Oswald, obviously Ruby is part of it, but we have Guy Bannister, and we have David Ferry. These were key, key witnesses in the possible connection of Shaw, Bannister, and Ferry. We have, since, uh, since the trial, found significant evidence that Shaw knew Oswald, not only through Perry Russo, but through the Clinton witnesses from Clinton, Clinton Louisiana, 10 people, eight of them black, I believe, pointed to Shaw as being in Clinton that day with Lee Oswald at a core rally. Dean Andrews pointed to Clay Shaw, or pointed to a, a man called Clay Bertrand, who Jim found out to be Clay Shaw. That testimony was thrown out of court by the judge in the scene that we show in the movie with the officer not being allowed to testify. We do believe that Clay Shaw was Clay Bertrand. The jury came back and said that there was no cons uh, that Shaw was not guilty, but they all, when they were polled after the trial, they said that Jim Garrison had convinced them that there had been a conspiracy to kill Kennedy, but they couldn't make the link to, to Clay Shaw. By the way, Jim Garrison did make his summation speech. Several people have said he did not. He did make that summation speech, he, and 80% of it is in the movie, in, in the scene. We added some from his Playboy interview. And a, few, and a couple of little polishes from me, but essentially that is his speech and that is his summation. Judge Haggerty, who presided over the case and who in a sense hurt Jim's case with, uh, by refusing to take the uh, Clay Bertrand testimony, said after Clay Shaw died, he waited until Clay Shaw died in 73, he said in a television interview, I do believe to this day that the jury should have found Clay Shaw guilty. I do not believe Clay Shaw told the truth on the at the trial. After the trial, we come in possession of a picture that shows that Clay Shaw and David Ferry were at a party together. I think that Shaw perjured himself time and again at that trial, denying that he knew Oswald, denying that he knew Ferry, and denying that he was a member of the CIA, which we find out that he was. Call him what you want, uh, domestic contact, et cetera, et cetera. He was, has a history with the CIA. It was pointed out by Richard Helms. Finally, under oath, he, he told the truth. And Victor Marchetti uh, supports that theory, saying that during the trial, Mr. Helms was very concerned with the fate of Clay Shaw and offered all the help he could. In addition to that, we now know that Mr. Shaw was on the board of directors of Permindex, a fascist organization in Italy that was thrown out of Italy for illegal espionage activities. Among them, promoting uh, financial transactions and the uh, attempted assassination of Charles de Gaulle, the president of France. So. I do not think we have here uh, this innocent businessman pictured by the press. I think we have a serious case that was brought and lost and failed, and we have that is as it is. But there is something more than meets the eye. I would liken Jim Garrison's case somewhat to the Lawrence Walsh uh, case of the 1980s when he tried to bring that same covert arm of the government 
to the light of day, and he failed. Jim's uh, subpoenas on Dulles, on Cabell, on Helms were all uh, squashed by the, by the Justice Department in Washington. The, the final question I have is what, what people should do uh, to try and bring about a reopening of the case. I think they should start by reading your book on the trail of the assassins so that they uh, have a clearer picture of what's going on in this country. But what, what do you think people can do? Is there anything we can do? I think the only thing can do uh, that can be done, I do think that would be a good start because I put six years on something I could have done in two. The reason I put six years is on the, on the trail of the assassinations was to make it irrefutable. So even someone who begins doubting my position or something will have to end up seeing what happened and what the government did. Then the second thing, and I cannot tell the people how to do this because I'm not a seer nor a prophet, but I can only tell them that my instincts and from the bottom of my heart, I have the feeling that they must then somehow communicate to two groups, the Congress and the executive department, that they will no longer take the lie. If they have to do like the Chinese youths did, the students do, did, and, and block the military from coming into the square, whatever they have to do, they have to tell the government, we will not take this lie anymore. Make this government the way it's supposed to be and stop telling us an unbelievable lie because we won't take it. You have heard an interview with Judge Jim Garrison. He has done his part to rescue the true history of America by giving the lie to the Warren Report's fictions. Oliver Stone's powerful movie has burst the lid off the cover-up and the assassination is no longer a taboo subject for public debate and action. However, neither Stone nor Garrison claim to know the whole truth, and a solid majority of Americans believe that Oswald was not alone. In effect, America believes that an unknown group of activists successfully murdered the president and may still be at large, and perhaps more significantly, that our government has never been able to mount an honest attempt to openly investigate what happened. If the government's intelligence arm cannot be examined about its actions 28 years later on a matter of this magnitude, how can Americans believe that we are governed through an open system reflecting the will of an informed public, a government of, by, and for the people? Perhaps at last, America is claiming the right to its history. Perhaps our society may now be ready to face the truth and the meaning of what happened in Dallas, the day John Kennedy died. Perhaps. You've been listening to The Assassination of JFK, The Garrison Interview, Part 2. In this 1988 radio documentary, you've heard the voice of co-producer and writer David Mendelson interviewing former New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, author of Mafia Kingfish, Carlos Marcello and the Assassination of JFK, John Davis, and filmmaker Oliver Stone. Roscoe Mercer narrated... The Assassination of JFK The Garrison interview was co-produced, directed, and edited by Andrew Phillips. Andrew Phillips is currently the Interim General Manager of KPFA Radio in Berkeley, California, part of the Pacifica Network. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, 
Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. That's gunsandbutter.org. 